so privileged to be able to preach God's word to you this morning, but I wonder if you would just join me in praying as we celebrate uh, the amazing message of Good Friday, as we move into this uh, Easter Sunday time to further feed our convictions and to celebrate the great truths of the gospel. I'd love us just to pray for our world that right now needs the helpfulness of God. As we look across uh, what's happening in the Ukraine and with Russia, as we look across the floods of uh, KZN, I just feel like it would be so good for us. There's a bit of an echo. Is that me or... It's an echo from that empty tomb. (laughs) Not bad, guys. Is there something I ought to be doing? You'll sort it out. I'm just going to keep going. And I'm going to invite you just to bow your heads with me in prayer. And let's be before the Lord in a way that... uh... There we are. As you can see, I've been just marginalised. Give me a hand marker. Shall I just do that? Carry on. Okay. I'm glad that we get moments like that because I can like add five minutes to my talk now as a result of that. Lord, together with friends and family in the faith, we just want to pause right now. So much to celebrate so much that we can be grateful for in terms of being anchored. Thank you for a magnificent, extravagant love demonstrated on the cross. And thank you for what we're going to speak about today in terms of the resurrection. But we don't want to just within the walls of a church uh, feed off the hope of that for ourselves. We want to bring our world and its brokenness and its need for mercy to you today. And so we just pause to say, God, won't you extend the scepter of your rule and authority? Won't you, in great mercy, uh, rescue our world in many senses from itself, from its madness, from its selfishness, from its sinfulness, from its darkness, from its shadows? And won't you, in great kindness, Lord, just bring your healing. uh, Make this war to cease in the Ukraine. Uh, Lord, the devastation of KZN, so many families, so many of those who are brothers and sisters that we've never met. We want to ask for your great mercy to be upon those households, particularly those families that have lost loved ones. And we identify with them today in their pain and ask for your mercy and ask for your grace. All this in Christ's name. Amen. Did this just fall on its own? Am I just a small guy now? Feels a little bit like faulty towers. What happened there? I wanted a bit higher. That's it. That's it. It was perfect until Ryan got up here. Ever since I handed this church over to Ryan, we've had nothing but chaos. 
That's not true. Well done, Common Ground, for that amazing, creative uh, labyrinth that we got to participate in. It was so lovely just to, to find my heart so tenderized, freshly uh, appreciating the wonder and the majesty of what happened on that cross. There's a guy by the name of John Bloom, and you can read this quote. He describes Good Friday as follows. Behold this man hanging on a wooden cross from stakes driven through his hands and feet. It's a horrid image, and it's beautiful. It's tragic, and it's hopeful. This man is the tortured paradox. His execution was simultaneously history's most despicable act of injustice and most noble act of justice, an utterly merciless death and an utterly merciful death. The supreme display of hatred and the supreme display of love. That is why people like us paradoxically call the day Jesus horribly died Good Friday. There's a Mexican songwriter by the name of Maria Griva who wrote the song that the Billy Holidays and I think Amy Winehouse is also singing it. What a difference a day makes. You know the song, I could sing it for you, but I want to keep you indoors. Just 24 little hours. The beauty of that labyrinth, particularly in those final 24 hours, captures something of the difference that day was about to make for human history. And of course, this morning, we're celebrating the moment on Easter Sunday, 2,000 years ago, when the known world, and ever since then, the world itself, has been waking up to this shocking idea that the one who died on the cross rose again from the dead. And so the message rang out, Jesus is alive. He is risen from the dead. And so this Christ follower movement exploded into history. It gained traction into the soft underbelly of that mighty Roman empire. It couldn't quell it. And friends, I want to say to you, if you're anything like me, 40-something years ago, the thing that melted in me when I heard the story was the beauty, the power of the death and resurrection in Jesus. There was a ocean of cynicism that had gripped my soul. The toxicity of that made me angry, until I heard this message and began to wrestle with its implications. Just remember, just because this message of the death and resurrection of Jesus is unpopular in our culture, it doesn't make it untrue. And we've got to ask the question, why is it so unpopular? And some of what you'll hear today will explain that, but at the same time, it hopefully will have a magnetism for our hearts and our souls. The reason, just to give you a, a little kind of a teaser of why our culture so opposes 
this message we hear on Good Friday to Easter Sunday is that there's a God in Jesus Christ who's broken into the world and has defined what our greatest problem is. And he uses words like sin and death and calls us to account. And part of what we resist is this concept that we're powerless to save ourselves. The story of Good Friday and Easter Sunday shows the invasion of a new power that is supernatural. It's the power that the prophets predicted for thousands of years in the Old Testament. It's the power that Jesus began to explain this good news explained that, that climaxed in his own resurrection. He himself, and have you ever thought of the self-consciousness of Jesus, the self-awareness of Jesus, as he's living through those 30-odd years on this planet, as he's awakened to the role of what he is called to do by his Father out of the Trinity, as he is the second person of the Trinity, as he breaks into history, this growing sense of what he's moving toward and so you find over and over he kind of anticipates not just his death, but his resurrection. And then, of course, he ultimately evidences it by dying on the cross and then being raised from the, the dead. And the book of Acts just uh, captures something of the explosion of this narrative as they proclaimed, Jesus is alive. And this church exploded into the known world. Now many skeptics would say that those disciples created this religious movement as a kind of a hoax just to start their own religion. But that doesn't cut it because all, virtually all of them were executed for their faith. All they had to say was, okay, we lied, it's a hoax. All they had to do was present the body but they declared the truth of the resurrection with their dying breath. Blaise Pascal, the French physicist, said these words, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. <laughs> and of course, here's a fantastic quote from a, a Yale uh, historian by the name of Kenneth Latourette. Why among all the cults and philosophies competing in the Roman grecan world did Christianity succeed and outstrip all the others, though it had greater persecution than all the others and less backers from influential people? How did it overcome and outlive the very empire that sought to uproot it? It is clear that at the beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy perhaps unequaled in our history, without which the future course of Christianity is inexplicable. What a difference the third day makes. I got that from Sue this morning. Was it yesterday? Or? My wife, Sue, 46 years of marriage. Today we're going to look at two shocking claims Jesus made from those readings that Sam read to us. Uh, and of course, the, without going into all the details, there's an intense conversation going on between the Son of Man, Jesus, 
and these religious dudes who've kind of got the primary market share of people in terms of uh, the attention, they were commanding the hearts. It was a kind of command and control kind of religious setup they had. And Jesus breaks into this and begins to live this loving, gracious, kind, a powerful life right under their noses. And there is there are many kind of realms that they have in the Gospels. But these guys hated Jesus because uh, their control and their power was under threat. The difference is Jesus is moved with tremendous love and compassion. And he's trying to win them. He's trying to melt the cynicism and the anger away. And so I read to you again uh, these words. Once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away. And you will look for me, is that hint of the resurrection, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come, heaven. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, earthly. I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am He, you will indeed die in your sins. And so the first shocking claim that Jesus is making here, drum solo, I know it's self-evident, but it's so good that we get it. He claims to be the only Savior of mankind. Although He's looking at uh, 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 a Jewish audience when he says, says these words that are captured in Scripture and this thought is captured right throughout Scripture that we need a Savior and our real problem is not global warming, although we need to pay attention to that. It's not, uh, you know, international kind of uh, uh, crises he, he's aiming deeper than the veneer and the superficiality of what we read in our newspapers. He says there's a fault line in who we are, what we become, and he calls it sin. But because Jesus loves them and wants them to also be followers, wants them to find eternal life, he lovingly continues this conversation with people who really aggro and dismissive of his role as the Messiah. And he presses them. He says, you're from below and are of this world. He says, but I am from above and I'm not of this world. He's claiming some kind of heavenly origin. He has been sent from heaven to gate crash human history in a way that's unparalleled. This is a different category of person who's standing in front of these religious guys. And if he's from heaven, he doesn't have our fault line. He's come from the holiest heights of majesty in heaven. He doesn't have our sinfulness. He's unfallen. And in these words, if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Jesus is claiming to be not just the one who can identify that fault line, but the one who has come to rescue, who's come to save, who's come to redeem. 
Effectively, Jesus is saying, and I get it, this sounds incredibly intolerant. Effectively, he's saying that I'm the only way. As he said in John 14 and verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, gets to heaven, except through me. Other writers says, he who has the Son has this life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And with that, there's this shocking sense that we're still grappling with today. This notion of how can anybody claim to be the only way to God. And this is the difference. When he says, you're of below, I'm from above, he's not anybody. This is a different category of saviour. And I'm not saying that there isn't any good in any other belief systems. Please hear that. I think it's a terrible, terribly arrogant thing for Christians to think that only good stuff comes out of our faith framework. I think there are many good things. I've been to India 23 times. I've had the, the privilege of meeting many, many different Hindu people. And we would differ on where we land and have these conversations, but I still think we can be loving and respectful. One of the things I've learned over all those years is we can all be wrong, but we can't all be right at the same time. And in Buddhism, there some, there's some beautiful things we can learn in terms of this desire to escape self-centeredness, consumption, being totally, totally committed just to squeezing all the good stuff out of, out of life very, very often at great cost to ourselves and to others. And they point, some of the suffering in our world is from this tremendous selfishness and we should, we should, we should say tick to that. But Jesus claims that none of, to be something that none of these other religious uh, frameworks or uh, leaders ever claim. None of the other religions of the world claim to be a savior. In Buddhism, uh, if our problem is self-centeredness, the solution is not a savior. It's to, you overcome your self-centeredness through the noble eightfold path, these rigorous disciplines that we embrace to, to free ourselves of the selfishness. Buddha's last words, strive without ceasing. Hinduism, like Buddhism, is, is a little more pessimistic. It says, yes, you can overcome your sins and your guilt, but you do it by overcoming karmic debt through multiple reincarnations. It says you've got to strive through the cycles of life to pay back what you owe. And then Islam is quite different because it presents a personal God as opposed to impersonal karma. But it does speak of God being merciful. But listen carefully. 114 of the Quran surahs, chapters, start off mentioning the mercy of Allah. But who is Allah merciful to? He is merciful to the obedient. There's no mercy to the disobedient. Mercy needs to be earned. So in a sense, so many of these other faith, frame, faith frameworks, which we need to respect the leaders, we need to be able to engage respectfully, uh, 
The, the issue is, it's not about finding a saviour, it's finding a, 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 a ladder to climb. It's generating our own sense of salvation by what we do. Emil Brunner writes, these religions all share the same optimism of self-salvation. The way of salvation essentially is to strive without ceasing. How different is it that this God-man, Jesus Christ, when he dies on the cross, he knows that every human being on this problem has one essential common fault line. It's our fallenness, it's our sin. And while he dies on the cross as the perfect sacrifice, the one who's never sinned, he lays down his life as the atoning lamb for the sins of the whole world. For God so loved the world. It's the most inclusive uh, uh, statement that Jesus ever made. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him would not perish. And so his last words on the cross are these words, tetelestai, tetelestai. It is finished, paid in full. Religion says do, treadmill, ladder climbing. The gospel says done. The gospel says no ladders, it's an escalator. It's stepping on to the escalator of grace and God, through sheer mercy, lifts us and takes us north. But now the question you're asking possibly is how can Jesus make such an exclusive claim? Don't all religions lead to God? It's a nice idea, but we've got to investigate this as a truth claim. Is it truthful? And when you say something like that, all paths lead to Rome, <laughs> we're being more inclusive than Jesus himself. We, uh, sorry, we're being more exclusive than him. When we're saying only good people get to God by striving to be good, that's a very exclusive statement. And it excludes people like me who've done some pretty bad stuff in my life and I'm not really all that proud of. I've I've, I know what it's like to carry shame and guilt for that stuff. And I'm so glad that Jesus has found a way to include me not on the basis of my performance. And the second thing around Jesus' exclusive claim, I'm the way to God. If we can get to God by striving without ceasing, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? If we could self-generate what we need, why did Jesus need to die that excruciating death on the cross? Don't, don't you, those of you who, who understand church, you, 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 know, you, you may be familiar with that scene in the gospel where Jesus is praying, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Don't let it happen. And the paraphrase of God's answer would be, no, there's no other way. That sinful, self-centered people can be united with me, a sinless God, except through your death on their behalf. And if we believe that our salvation is one of many options in a smorgasbord of, 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 of religious frameworks, if we believe that, then we make a mockery of the cross of Christ, Jesus agonizing in the garden. Maybe we should say to him, Jesus, don't, don't bother dying. 
We can save ourselves. We'll find someone who spins the exact combination of goodness, deeds, devotions, duties, and dogma and save ourselves. But by the way, thanks for trying to help. That's not an option that's on the table here. This is something that's not between this pole and this pole. This, and it's not, it's not declaring war on every other pole. It is a different category of savior. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus is claiming to be the world's only savior. So that's the first thing. Jesus is claiming to be a savior for all of us. What's the second big claim Jesus make in this passage? He's not just claiming to be the world's only savior. He's claiming to be a divine savior, a Messiah that was anticipated for 4,000 years, 2,000 years at that time of biblical history, 4,000 years of us. And he alludes to Abraham. You know, of course, Abraham lived 2,000 years BC and he's regarded as the father of the faith for both Jews, Christians, and Muslims. But in verse 56, he makes this outrageous claim. And of course, it's not just Jesus who says this. The Apostle Paul also spoke about the fact that Abraham one day would have a descendant, a single son, through whom, through whom blessing would come to the whole world. And as he's explaining this, he, uses, he says these words, before Abraham was, I am. Three Reasons why it's shocking. Put your safety belts on. First shocking claim of Jesus that he's the savior. The second shocking claim of Jesus, he's the divine savior. There's something very different about who died on the cross and who was raised from the dead on, on Easter morning. Firstly, it's shocking because in verse 33, Jesus is claiming, or sorry, Jesus at age 33 is claiming that he was around before Abraham existed. <laughs> this is interesting. He's claiming pre-existence to being a human being on this planet. No religious system or leader ha has this kind of claim at the heart of what's going on here. The second shocking thing is Jesus is claiming to be transcendent over time itself, because he's not saying before Abraham I was. He's not just claiming to be transcendent. He is oh, to be a, um, pre-existent. He's claiming to be transcendent over time itself. He's kind of transcendent in the sense of an eternal present kind of way. He's claiming to be transcendent in the sense or in a way that only God can be transcendent. And he's using, thirdly, the most shocking way to describe it. Just remember that this would have been lost in the first century to Jewish ears, but for centuries since then, we've been reading it and catching up for why those Jewish hearers got really mad. I mean, they're having a heated conversation. The next minute, they want to kill him. The next minute, they want to see him crucified. 
Why did they get so angry? Because every Jewish person knew that God's name was Yahweh. Yahweh. When God had that encounter with Moses, or Moses had the encounter with God at the burning bush and tells him to go and set his people free. And Moses asks, who should I say sent me? And you say, you tell Pharaoh that I am who I am sent you. And then later it got condensed down just to I am sent you. And there's great mystery in this. We don't have time to get into it now, but in the Gospels over and over, I am the good shepherd, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. There's somebody who's making these claims, who's, who's eternal, who's transcendent, and who claims a unique identity around the name of God, Yahweh. It was a red rag to the bull and it's like to bulls, and it certainly did set the course for Good Friday in the life of Jesus. So, friends, let me say this if Jesus had not risen from the dead, we would not believe that he is divine. Because a human being who claims to have been sent from heaven and then just died and buried, we don't have a living saviour. We just have a nice moral teacher. Only a divine saviour can forgive us. And since only God is sinless, we needed this God to die for us. But he needed to die for human beings, so this God became fully human. And so what's on the cross, what's in the tomb is the God-man. And on the third day, it's the God-man who is raised from the dead. And of course, I'm running ahead of myself as we close. Only a divine risen Saviour gives us the power to live this new life, gives us a power to overcome our self-centeredness that starts to... Uh, First of all, forgive us from our, of our sin and our guilt and our shame, but not just leave us forgiven. Starts to regenerate us, transform us, sanctify us, and make us the beneficiaries of His own indwelling nature. Christ in you through the resurrection, the hope of glory. And so as I wrap up, Jesus' shocking claims can be summarised into just one. I am the only divine risen Saviour and I love you and I, uh, and he had said, when the Son of Man is lifted up on that cross, I will draw all men to myself. This is inclusive. This is the one who's made rooms for, for billions to be wonderfully forgiven transformed and being to, uh, to be included in God's forever family. Let me come right down to what I believe God wants us to hear today. If this is true, there is unbridled hope for us, for the world and the future. But let me be honest, if it's not true, then don't waste a second. Self, save yourself through whatever combination of deeds, devotions, dogmas, and duties. 
But ultimately, our choice will determine our status before God and the trajectory of our lives and the eternal destiny of our souls. I'm not advocating the second thing (laughs) as much as I'm just saying that's what's on the table when we come to the cross and we come to the empty tomb. We can't marginalise Jesus to the margins, yes, of your life, but He is still the risen Saviour of the world and He is the upholder of the cosmos and by Him all things are held together and He has the title deeds to human history and He will have the last word in human history and He will come back one day and say, gentlemen, it's closing time because all of the purposes of God would have been climaxed between Now and then, he's inviting us all into the scandalous possibility of grace, of forgiveness, of freedom, of a new life. And quickly, if Jesus rose from the dead, so what? Well, as Leo Tolstoy says, it changes everything and gives meaning to everything. If Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God, you know what it means? It means that God was approving of Good Friday. God was saying, yes, I receive what you did on the cross for the sins of the whole world. And nobody ever needs to doubt whether God loves them or will receive them. His atoning work is now in session. The Savior saves. The Savior uh, uh, renews. The Savior heals broken hearts. Also means he's got, he's available 24-7. We have access to this risen Christ. We're invited and this church and every other church down through 2,000 years of church history is called his body. And he is the living perfect head of an imperfect body because it's us. But his perfect love is perfecting us. Christ is in session. And some more good news. What does it mean? It means when we grapple with the reality of death, this fault line connects to death. That's why we, we, we grieve and mourn when loved ones go on. But here's the good news. It doesn't have the final word anymore. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he laid the grounds for our future resurrection, our new resurrection body. He laid the grounds for the renewal of heaven and earth. Folk, you want something that's quite breathtaking? Jesus' resurrection happened on earth, which tells us of all the little dots of dust in the universe, he's doing something pretty special. And it's not just our redemption, it's also the renewal of this planet. That's why we should care for this planet best we could. And finally, because Jesus rose from the dead, we who are living off this fragrance of the empty tomb, we're part of his mission. We spread the love in the same way that he did. And so, dear friends, as Ryan quoted earlier, it wasn't a Rigby quote. It was Pope John Paul II who said, we are the Easter people and hallelujah is our song. And I'm going to pray for us. And uh, as we go to prayer, the band will come up. We're going to sing a, uh, we won't sing a song. The band will come up and then I will lead us in communion. But I want us just to take a deep breath. 
I mean, can you believe that I did that in 35 minutes? That's breathtaking. But I want us just in this very warm, loving environment to know this. You're under the gaze of God. From the first moment we stepped in here today, I just felt the sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Worship times have been amazing. The biblical encouragements we've received, the whispers of the Lord has been so rich. I'd love you just where you see today. Why don't you just bow your heads, close your eyes if you're comfortable with that. I'd love to pray for us. That's something of the wonder of what we've heard today would, would, would settle freshly in our hearts. Maybe for some of you, some of the cynicism, maybe even some of the anger at Christians and churches and leaders who've messed things up, some of that would just dissipate as we lift our sights higher to this perfect Savior who said, unless you believe that I'm He, you'll die in your sins. But I've come to be who I am. I've come to be the Savior of the world. I've come to rescue you. I've come to redeem you. I've come to wash you clean. I've come to adopt you. Maybe you feel like a cork in an ocean of currents. The message of grace <laughs> is once you get into that current, you're forever changed, you're accepted, you're, you're loved. God, I want to pray for your people today that we'd be an Easter people as we were reminded, not just today, but tomorrow and next week and next year. We put our shoulders back, so to speak, and bask freshly in the wonder of such an amazing Saviour, of such a full and rich salvation. Come and renew us afresh. Come and feed our faith roots. God, I want to pray for those who are new to church, maybe online friends who are just checking it out. I want to pray. Jesus, you said when you lift it up, you will draw people to yourself. I want to pray, draw men and women to yourself. Give them the courage to say yes to Christ as divine Saviour. Give them the courage to lay down all our self-effort, the tyranny of ladder climbing, the tyranny of the hamster wheel of good works. Won't you break that cycle? May today be a day where because the tomb is empty, our hearts are freshly full. We invite you in, Lord Jesus Christ. You can pray that prayer right where you are. Right now, you can say, yes, I believe. You can just say, Lord, I, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I acknowledge that all my best efforts can't save me. I acknowledge today that you are the only worthy Saviour of my life. To that end, I humbly ask, crucified, risen Christ, come into my life today. Make me brand new. 
accept me as I am. Please don't leave me as I am. I invite your transforming power, the Holy Spirit, to make me brand new in the inside. Jesus, release the power of your nature in me to live in a new way, to know the power of the resurrection. Ask this believing that you died for my sins. Lord, we know that to believe that you died, that's just history, but that you died for me, that you died for me, that is salvation. That is a Saviour receiving the reward of His suffering. To that end, Lord, we invite You to do Your saving work among us today, Your restoring work if we've wondered. And we give You honour and glory and we say to You, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, thank You for the wonder, the majesty, the beauty of such redeeming love. Everybody said? Yes! We are the Easter people! Hallelujah is our song. We're going to go to communion. Sorry for that outburst, but I had one of those moments where what was up there hit inside here. I just can't stop it, guys. We're going to go to communion. And I want to read to you these words from Jesus. Why don't you stand to your feet? You've sat very patiently on that last communion meal with those he loved so much. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he said, this cup is poured out for you. Body broken, blood shed for you, for me. We're going to go to the table of the Lord. We're going to remember. And the book of Acts explodes with this table at the centre of a resurrection love feast. We weren't mourning the cross. We were honouring the broken body, but we were living in the joy of Jesus being among us as we eat this bread and drink this grape juice. Christ is among us ministering. So if you've got one of these little things, I always get it wrong. So you've got to take the plastic thing off the top and if you're at home and you've got your own this is the body of Jesus broken for you I want you just to turn to two or three people on either side of you and say this is for you just do that quickly And then he said, this cup is poured out for you. Say to a few people on the other side, different people say, 
poured out for you. Poured out for you. Poured out for you. Some of you, this might be your first communion. If you believe this message, you're welcome to this table. Let's drink. Now let's fill our hearts with this fragrance, with this air, the oxygen of conviction. And let's sing this final song together and make so much more of our divine Savior. Go for it, guys.